under a rock lately or whether you've actually realised that the world is becoming what I would define as violently partisan. Uh, we are seeing uh, all kinds of eruptions around the world. And um, if you're at all an observer of what's going on in the States right now, uh, what happened at Berkeley UC just yesterday, uh, where you know, one person got up to present a view and, and, and of course they're all hell broke loose. Um, and I want to suggest to you this morning, it's very important that you're here. I'm so glad you're here because I want to speak to a, to a subject that is going to become more and more and more an issue for you as time continues to progress. Jesus handled this violent partisan relationship with absolute class in an amazing way. And in a moment, I'm going to show you how He does it. Before I do that, um, when I was a kid growing up, we had, you know, there was the Christians, but there wasn't the Christians. There was the, uh, the Catholics and the Protestants, right? And some of you who are kind of back, back in the day, we'd go to, you know, RE, you know, are you a Catholic or a Protestant, you know? And if one was a Catholic, it was almost as being the difference between male and female, you know? I mean, it was like you were either Catholic or you were Protestant. Uh, and of course, within the confines of, um, of Islam, you know, you've got the Sunni, and the Shia, and uh, they'll blow each other up and do all kinds of things because, you know, each one is right over uh, the other. Um, three times a year, uh, you've got the cane toads and the cockroaches. Amen? <laughs> and, and, and we know which one is superior. And uh, we'll do anything we can to undermine and to debilitate the other because we live in this partisan, we love thems and uses, don't we? You know, we love to have, it's them over there and we are part of the uses and it's called wedge politics and it's becoming more and more a deal whereby I will protect you as your great leader from the them because we are the us and we can't trust the them. So we need to build a big wall to keep the thems out because we are the uses and the uses don't like the thems. There's been thems and us's ever since time and memorial. There's something about you, there's something about me that creates the thems and the us's, the left wing and the right wing, you know, progressives and conservatives. And, and we tend to listen and lean in to the voices that validate our predisposition. For example, um, you know, if you're right wing, you listen to Alan Jones. If you're left wing, you listen to his brother, Tony Jones. Either way, you have a Jones. Uh, even in this room, even in this room, even in your church, there are thems and uses. You've got the young people, the old people. You've got uh, in your family, you've got, you know, dad's side and mum's side. You've got the workers, you've got the managers. You've got those who agree with us and those who don't. I don't know whether you've ever been to a wedding, particularly a wedding of a, a relative or of a friend who's not part of the church community, you know, and, uh, and, and have a bunch of church friends or a person in the church community that has a bunch of, you know, pagan friends. And, and, and you go to the reception. Who's ever been to that reception? <laughs> 
You know what I'm talking about. You got, you got one group down there, you know what I mean, getting drunk and carrying on and, and all kinds of, uh, all kinds of uh, uh, untoward things happening. And then you got this group over here drinking tea, you know, and looking further down their nose at that group over there as the night progresses. And you get this divide between the thems, um, the us's. The truth is, you can go back in time and you can come up, this might shock some of you, right? Some of you might push back on this real hard. But you can go back in time and look at almost any issue that has ever presented itself in the public forum. And you'll find Christians on both sides of that issue. Praying for God to vindicate them against those black eyes, those villains on the other side. And it goes on in church world. I mean, I, you know, I've been in church world and I, you know, back in the day, I've been in church world, I'm 54 now for 50 years, all my life basically. And I, I've seen some terrible things and I've seen some horrible splits right down the middle of the church. I remember one vote went 51-49. I mean, that's how split it was. And, and one side completely distrusted and undermined the other and the reverse was going on there. Folks, the social issues that are going to face us over the next five years, this is only going to increase. And the partisan them and us thing, right, the walls that we continue to build will only get higher and thicker. And the violence that we feel in our heart towards the other side is only going to get darker and more vitriolic. And, uh, and the justification that we feel about our own position is only going to get more and more um, self-aggrandization uh, and self-deceptive, to be honest with you. So into this environment, right, into this partisan kind of, you know, Berkeley UC environment, Jesus finds himself in what is probably the most recognised piece of literature in human history. What I'm going to share with you today is not from an obscure part of the Bible, but from probably the best known part of the Bible. This story is, is it's found its way into secular vernacular. It's known by every Christian, but it's known by a lot of people that are not Christians. As I say, it's probably the most um, recognised piece of literature in human history. I'm talking about Luke chapter 15, and in particular, the story of the prodigal son, right? Everyone in this room knows the story of the prodigal son. And I'm going to get into this story this morning, probably in a way that you've never heard it before. I'm going to deliver to you the prodigal son, I believe, from the position that Jesus had in telling the story in the first place. Now, it comes into this environment. It says in Luke chapter 15, verse 1, it says, Tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of the religious law complain because he was associated with such sinful people. He's even eating with them. So you've got the two groups. Right? You've got the, uh, the sinners, the tax collectors and the sinners. And it's interesting, tax collectors have their own category. Uh, it's not the murderers and the sinners, right? Uh, you know, it's the tax collectors and the sinners. So like tax collectors are so low that we can't just include them with the sinners. They need their own special category. 
Now, I want to, um, words of comfort if you work for the ATO. Uh, uh, tax collectors in this culture, right, they had committed the sin of treason. They had aligned themselves with Rome against the Jews. So that's what that's about. It's not against the concept of collecting tax, just to make that clear for you. He finds himself in this partisan environment um, where the religious people, right, those who you could say were like him, didn't like him. Those who would have found themselves as Jesus would have been ceremonially clean. Those who would have understood and been able to quote the Torah as Jesus could have quoted the Torah. Those who were religious and Jesus would be defined as a religious leader. And yet the religious people of the day didn't seem to warm to Him. It's fair to say that Jesus uh, is kind of working in the opposite spirit. It's a paradox I said before that you hang around like-minded people. Birds of a feather flock together, right? So if I'm a, you know, a, a, a white, straight, male conservative, <laughs> which covers, you know, 60% of the crowd, uh, then that probably, you know, then I tend to hang around others that are like me. You know, if I'm a Christian, I find that a Christian, we gravitate together. There was something about, something paradoxical about Jesus. That, that, that he didn't gravitate towards those who were like him, unlike anybody else in human history. Those who were not like him gravitated towards him. The sinners gravitated toward him. The tax collectors gravitated towards him. And it made those who were theologically aligned, um, those who were practically aligned in the way they lived, you know, clean and Righteous kind of deal. It made them angry. And it's into this partisan environment that Jesus brings his healing words. You can never win a heart through a battle of the wits. Have you ever, ever, ever noted that? Have you ever been watching television? I'm a bit of a political junkie. I watch all this kind of Q&A stuff and all stuff. Have you, have you ever seen, you know, one side arguing, oh, another bloke, he's arguing, and they get halfway through the debate and one bloke goes, you know, I never saw it like that before. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you never see it, right? It's bad television. <laughs> uh, good television is, is this partisan, you know. The only time you ever see a pastor on television is when he's speaking against something. <laughs> Right? If we do something positive, if we do something that's proactive, no, you don't hear about that. You know, there was a prayer breakfast in Washington just yesterday. I wonder how many of you knew that, you know. But there was, you know, riots in Berkeley. You know, everybody hears about that. There's something about the press and all they want is this. They want to fan the partisan uh, environment. But Jesus comes along and He quells it and... Uh, and let me just say this, if you're a parent here today, this is a great little teaching that you can take away from this. High emotion, right? High emotive moments, low teaching moments. Write that down, Mum. High emotion, low teaching, right? How many times have I told you? Don't you ever listen? Well, when you're raising your voice, the answer is no. Because when there's high emotion, there's low reception. High emotion equals low reception. Why? Because when there's high emotion, pride is high. Defences are high. 
Uh, and so, you know, J- Jesus doesn't tackle this. And he- here's my point. He doesn't tackle it with a theological explanation. He doesn't come in and say to the Pharisees, look, you don't understand these tax collectors and sinners. He doesn't give a theological defence of his actions and some kind of, you know, uh, biblical understanding of what, what's... No, 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 no. What he does is profound. What he does is he tells a story. In fact, he tells a few stories. So this is what's going on here. He tells a story that everybody can identify with. Right, the Pharisees at the back, and I'm not drawing any, you know, aspersions here, but you know, so because it says the Pharisees can't get to him because the sinners on the front, you know, <laughs> uh, and the tax collectors at the front, they're just so close, and they're pressing into Jesus. And the Pharisees at the back can't get there, right? And so I'm just setting, I'm setting the, co- the, the the context for you. That's all. I'm not I'm not casting aspersions, but um, but he, he tells a story that both. Um, both groups can identify with. He tells a story of loss. He tells about a shepherd. Now, in this day and age, you think you've got 100 sheep, you've got 99 sheep, who cares, right? <laughs> I mean, seriously, you know, sheep make more sheep pretty quickly, if you happen, if you didn't know that. Uh, unlike cows that take a long time, sheep are much quicker. And uh, so if you lose a sheep, like, what does it matter, right? But it's not like that at all. Not in this culture, not to, you know, not to the shepherds. That would be like, not nowadays, it'd be like James and Michelle going to the beach, you know, 10 years ago uh, and uh, thinking, oh, where's, we've got three daughters and one goes missing and thinking, well, where is she? I'm not sure. Oh, well, we've got two, you know, two out of three ain't bad. As Meatloaf used to say, let's just go home, you know, don't be sad. Uh, you, you know, of course, it, it's funny how emotion grows around the thing that's lost. How many know what I'm talking about? I hate losing stuff. Have you ever lost your credit card? Have you ever lost your purse, right? I mean, you know, there's no emotion. I have no emotion towards my, my, my wallet or my purse whatsoever until, you know, the meeting's over, we've had lunch, you've gone home, you think, oh, I need to go to the shop and get something. <gasps> Where's my purse? And you go, maybe I've left it in the car. You go, you start looking through the car all calmly and serenely, right, for the first five minutes. And then, you know, there's babies flying through the air. The passenger seat just shot through the windscreen, you know, because I can't find my purse. And it had my wages in it. All of a sudden, all this emotion that grows around things that are lost. And, and, and we all understand loss because we've all lost things. You know, you, you don't really appreciate your grandmother until she goes and then you, there's emotion around her loss or uh, anybody for that matter. Uh, there's something about loss that dramatically increases the emotion um, around that. We were travelling in, uh, in New York with my wife and daughter a couple of years ago. And I said to my wife, I'll go next door to the free Wi-Fi at Macca's and check the flight times, make sure the plane's on, on, um, on time. You get the bags out of, you know, we left the room and left them in reception there. And I said, you get the bags, I'll check them, we'll come back, get a cab, we'll get to the airport. True story, this. I come back to, I come back to the hotel lobby and there's our bags open and all the possessions strewn across the foyer of this hotel in New York and my wife looking like her mother had just died. And I'm thinking, what is going on here? And I go over and I said, what's, 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 what's going on here? <laughs> and she says, she says, 
Melanie's passport's gone. I said, you're kidding. It was, she said, it was there. It was there. It was gone. It was there. And I put it, I put it in, locked it away, signed for it. We've come back and it's missing. And how many know, up at that point in time, we had no emotion towards that passport whatsoever. <laughs> right now, this passport is the most important thing on the planet. <laughs> we are searching for this passport. We are ripping everything apart. It was there only a few hours ago. It must be there now, right? The plane leaves in three and a half hours. We ain't going to get out of the United States of America without a passport. How many know what I'm talking about? And so we, we are going berserk looking for this passport. And long story short, we never found the passport. Um, it got stolen from the hotel thing, but safe. But anyway, that's, a, that's another story. The point I'm simply making is when you lose something, uh, emotion goes through the roof. And that's what this is about. It, it's lost on us because we talk about a lost sheep and it's like, who cares, Right. But when you lose your passport three and a half hours before your plane leaves you in New York City, maybe then you get the gravity of what's going on. And had we ever found that passport, how many know we would have been rejoicing? <laughs> now we didn't, but they did. <laughs> they found the lost sheep. And this is what happened, right? Jesus just caused something to happen that maybe had never happened before in the history of these two groups. They all went, yeah. They all agreed that there's much rejoicing when lost is found. Because they've all understood lost. They got what he was, he was getting at. And, and it's, like, it's like the Pharisee went, nodded his head, saw the sinners in front nodding his head, and stopped nodding. <laughs> we never agree with that lot. I don't agree with that lot. But, but, but the master communicator is taking them on a journey. See, stories transcend the brain and they captivate the heart. He, Jesus communicates in stories for a very, very good reason. And then he, he flips into his next story about a woman with 10 coins. He sees a woman in, in the crowd. And shepherds weren't women, so he, you know, he wants to bring both genders along. He talks about a woman who had 10 coins. You know the story, lost a coin, blah, blah, blah. Found the coin, everyone rejoices. Then he gets to the nub of where he's taking this group, right? There's application here for you and me, but the master communicator understands his crowd and he's speaking to his crowd. There's two sons. There was a younger son and an older son. There was a behaving son, the Pharisees. There was a misbehaving son. You figured it out, right? <laughs> so these two groups actually were the representation of the two, of, of the two, the two sons. And he's telling them a story about themselves, but they don't know it, right? So he brings them along for a ride. He's got them all agreeing on the importance of lostness, how there's emotion around lostness and rejoicing when lostness is no longer lost. It's like that which was dead is now alive kind of thing. <laughs> he's building something. He's no mug. <laughs> and, and, and he's going to tell them a story about themselves. And he tells a story about a young misbehaving son who um, goes to his father and says to his father, you're dead to me. As far as I'm concerned, you're dead. Give me my inheritance. When you die, I get my inheritance. Right, Dad? That's right. Well, give it to me now because as far as I'm concerned, you're dead to me. Give me what's mine now. I'll see you later. 
And, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't tell us how he does it. He liquidates asset, whatever. He had a huge bank account. We don't know. But the father takes the 50% of his wealth and gives it to his misbehaving son and bids him farewell. And we know what happened. He went out, lived a lifestyle beyond these means. One thing leads to another. He spent the lot. He's got nothing left. And, uh, and this is a Jewish crowd. So just to sink the slipper, Jesus says he's feeding pigs. <laughs> and everyone goes, this is just a story he's making up, right? He could, he could have been feeding sheep, but he's sinking the slipper right in here. <laughs> he's feeding pigs. Everyone goes, oh, that's dreadful. Fantastic. This is great, Jesus. This is a great story. This is what happens to young men who disobey their parents, who disrespect their elders. They finish up feeding pigs. These unclean, unfit animals that we aren't even allowed to touch, have anything with. That's what happens. Some Pharisee, the back right, and he's here thinking, this is a great, this would be great for Sabbath school. I can't wait for Sunday to get around. I'm going to tell this story. Because he's probably got the grade, you know, the grade five class boys or something, right? This is going to be a great grade five class for the boys. I can't wait to tell them about this young man who disrespected his father, got all this money and ended up on Skid Row feeding pigs. Everyone loves karma, right? <laughs> So the kid's feeding, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, the story comes to his senses and uh, thinks, well, you know, back in my father's house, even the servants get to get, get three square and a decent bed. So what if I go back? No longer worthy to be called his son, but, but maybe I could get a gig as a servant in my dad's house. And so he creates this little spiel and probably rehearsed it with every step of the journey home, you know. Father, forgive me for I've sinned against heaven and earth and blah, not worthy, etc., etc. He comes up with this beautiful, you know, uh, put together uh, speech of repentance and sorrow and how he's feeling about himself through all of this. And, and maybe there's people in the, pl- in the crowd thinking, oh, this is even better. His old man's going to tell him, his old man's going to be able to tell him, you know what you've done to your mother. Your mother hasn't slept a wink in the last six years. And you know what you've done to my family reputation. And you know what you did to the, you know, the value of the asset of the company. You know what you've done to us. You know, he'll be able to give it to him really what's for. This is going to be good. I can't wait to, to, to see the, the, the son having to, having to face off with the father and get the full, the, you know, both, both barrels uh, of, of what, he's, what he's done and where this thing is at. So um, I'll pick up the, the story. You've got a Bible in verse 20. We'll read from, from now on. So, so, so he returned home to his father. And while he was still a long way off, the father saw him coming. Jesus is sort of speaking and they, oh, okay, yeah, so great. Filled with Everyone's thinking, filled with, filled with judgment, <laughs> uh, filled with indignation, filled with anger, filled with, that's how they're feeling, right? He says, filled with love and compassion. <laughs> and right there, you know, Jesus turned the ship 90 degrees starboard and lost the whole crowd into the ocean. <laughs> So everyone's going, oh, this is great. This is great. Jesus just went, woo! And everyone went, oh! <laughs> right. If it was a church and that door was open and someone was driving a push bike along, 
That would have just got sucked into the vortex. Everyone went, <gasps> Some poor bloke at the end who was thinking this was a great story for Sabbath school, he just ripped up his nose. This is terrible. <laughs> Filled with love and compassion. What kind of an ending to the story is this? You can just see the Pharisees having a little meeting say, nobody must ever hear this story in the history of, human, of humanity, right? If this story ever gets out, God only knows what these young people will get up to. If they know they can get half their father's wealth, go off and do whatever they want to do, and then come back and the father's filled with love and compassion, God knows we'll never be able to control them. You could just hear them, couldn't you, say, this story must never be known. Nobody must ever hear about the prodigal son. That worked really well, didn't it? Anyhow. Because they were angry. They were angry with Jesus because He was eating with, 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 with the sinners. So you imagine how they felt. How would you feel about, about now a father full of love and compassion towards a, a person who would behave like this? Hmm. You know, um, you can tell a lot about a person by how they respond to sin. Uh, you can tell a lot about their relationship with, with God, their, their view of God, on how they react to the people around about them who have fallen. They get angry. Oh, we call it righteous indignation. Here's an interesting question that you can talk about on the way home. Why is there none of that in Jesus? But there's a pile of that in me. Why is that? Why do I get angry in my church with people who do the wrong thing and disagree with me? Yet Jesus embraces this guy with love and compassion. Why is that? If you can answer the question, if you've got the answer to that question, I'm going to carry that answer over and I'm going to ask you another question in a few moments about why is it in the, the nation of Australia that the sinners and tax collectors find the church by and large abhorrent and not like the Pharisees, are not like the sinners and the, and, and the tax collectors found Jesus. If you can answer that question, answer the previous question, I think you'd be able to answer that question. I just throw it out there. It, it, what I find interesting um, is that we come here and, he, and uh, the son says in uh, verse 21, Father, I've sinned against both heaven and you. I'm no longer to be um, no longer worthy to be called your son. Don't you love the father's response to this, right? So what would you say if your, you know, offspring, your child had come back to you and said, done all the naughty things, you know, come, dad or mom, I'm really sorry, you know, I'm no longer, etc., etc." What do you say in that moment? Well, what does, the, what does, uh, what does the father in the story say? Because you, you've got it all by now, right? Everyone in the story represents somebody. Right? The older son's representing the Pharisees, the younger son's representing the sinners, right? And the father represents God. Right, right. So, so you've all got what's going on here. So what does God say? How does God respond? What words does God use? I find it remarkable what God says to him. Look, nothing. <laughs> he, he, doesn't even, he, doesn't, he doesn't say, there, 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 son. It's okay, no problem, or you're an idiot. 
He doesn't respond one way or the other. What does he do? But the father said in verse 22, I'm reading from the NLT. The father said that a servant, this is a dreadful word. I don't know where this word is in the Bible. If I could take this word out of the Bible, I would take it out of the Bible. But I didn't write the thing. So don't blame me for it because it's, it's, Jesus got this wrong. All right, this is not the right word. Jesus uses the word quick. I would have said slow, wouldn't you? I wouldn't say quick. I would say, let's test him, you know. I mean, he spent all the money, right? I'd say, hide the silverware, he's back. I mean, wouldn't you? I would say, I would say look, we've got this bungalow, right, at the back of the, the fourth paddock, you know, behind the haystack, you know. Put him there. Don't tell his mother. Whatever you do, don't tell his mother, right? I'll keep him there for the next, you know, few months. And if in three months' time he's still wanting to get things right, well, then might just start to bring him back in bit by bit by bit because he's hurt his mother real bad. I've got to protect my, my, you know, my wife and I don't want to expose him to his mother. So I'm going to go slow. Huh? What the heck is Jesus thinking? <laughs> Where is Jesus coming from? Using words like this. Quick, he says. Bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring on his finger. Sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf, it says, and kill it. Let's have a feast and let's celebrate. And he has two sons, remember? That was the first son and there is a second son. What you have to understand is that the group of people listening to Jesus speak, the group, the Pharisees, they thought, man, we're God's favourites. God thinks we're great. We're in church every Sunday, you know. I mean, I'm on the stewards roster, you know. I'm on the board now. I'm part of the youth leadership team. I mean, I'm not just tithing, but I'm giving the missions. I'm giving to the building program. I'm giving an offering on top, and I'm doing pretty dang good. I'm reading my Bible every day, you know. I mean, I, I, I've been faithful to my wife. You know, I'm, I'm, I've done a pretty, God is pretty happy with me. That's what they're thinking. They think God like, and, and this, the, this group, they think, I'm, I can't go anywhere near the temple because God hates me. I can't remember ever being to that religious institution in the centre of Jerusalem there. Because clearly, we know what God thinks of us because He's represented at the back there, drilling holes in the back of our head right about now. God can't stand us. God hates us. We know God hates us. Have you ever heard anyone uh, in your world say, if I ever went to church, the roof would cave in. Ha, ha, ha. Like, that's what they would have thought. That same notion exists even today out there. God doesn't like us. Most people, it's not that they don't believe in God. It's that they don't believe God likes them. And so what are you left with? I mean, Seriously. You know, it's very difficult, I think, to honestly be an atheist. You conclude God doesn't like me. I don't like being not liked by anybody, frankly. So the easiest way for me to survive is to try to rationalise Him out of my world. And so um, you've got this other son. Uh, the father's throwing a party. <laughs> the youngest son, he ain't coming because he doesn't think he deserves to come. And the oldest son, 
ain't coming because he doesn't think they deserve to be a party. <laughs> and in the middle of it all, God. <laughs> he says in verse 24, I love this. Man, this is powerful. This son of mine was dead and now returned to life. Let me just stop and camp out on this for a minute. Because adjectives are so important. Adjectives are so important. You've no idea the emotion around your adjectives. You have no idea. When you talk about a certain group of people and how that makes you feel, how you describe those people. Those people make me feel like this. Those people make you feel like that. When those descriptive words come from your mouth, they're not carrying a lot of emotion, but let me assure you, they are connected to deep-seated emotion that you have. That's why we have such thing as racism. That's why we have, you know, walls and, and ghettos and, you know, trouble and strife. I, I, what I love about this is that this just, this just revealed to me the way Jesus divides the world. He doesn't divide it into black and white, male or female, left and right. He divides them into dead and alive. <laughs> That's it, baby. You're either dead or you're alive. He was dead and now he's alive. The older brother was angry and wouldn't go in. His father came out and begged him. But he replied, now here's the, here's the older brother's speech. We've already heard the younger brother's speech, right? Father, forgive me for I'm not worthy, blah, 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 blah. And now we've got the, the, the righteous brother's speech, okay? The older brother was angry. He said this. Uh, he said, his father came out begging, all these years I've slaved for you, never once refused to do a single thing you told me. And all the time you never gave me not even a goat for a fish with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, not this brother of mine, this son of yours comes back after squandering your money on prostitutes. My goodness. Not only was he with pigs, he was with prostitutes. You celebrate? You celebrate him by killing the, the word the there, because he would have had lots of cows. The word the signifies a specific beast that was put aside for a specific reason. It may have been this guy's 21st, his engagement party, we don't know. <laughs> but just listening to him carry on, my gut feel is that it was set aside for something and he thought he was attached to it. Because <laughs> he says, the fatted calf. Um. I said before that when the, uh, the younger son gave his little spiel, uh, the response from the father was to the servant. He didn't even, he didn't, he, did, he said nothing in return, right? He didn't say, there, there, or you're, you're an idiot. He just spoke and, and, and did something. His actions replied, but not this time. This time, he verbally responds. Now, if you get verse 31, you get it. If you don't get verse 31, I'm sorry, I don't think I can help you. <laughs> verse 31 is the essence of the story. Verse 31 
is where it all hinges. Let me read it to you, even though I recognise by looking at you, you've mostly already read it. Uh, (laughs) My son, he's speaking, the father's speaking. You are always with me. I'll say it again. You are always with me. See, this is where he was gone awry. He thought it was all about what he'd done. I've done everything you've asked. I've done this. I've done that. And I've done this. I've been serving you. And I, I didn't misbehave. And I didn't leave my wife. And I didn't go and do this. And I wasn't being a prostitute. I wasn't feeding pigs. And I wasn't doing this. And, 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 and he, he doesn't react. He doesn't respond to all of this just self-justification. He simply communicates the heart of God in a few simple words. You were always with me. Our relationship has never been broken. His inheritance, he squandered his inheritance. Everything I have is yours. He, he, he metaphorically has just taken these two groups of people smashed their heads together and walked off. (laughs) And 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 then they're thinking, what the like what what was that about? (laughs) Like what the we thought him? (laughs) No. (laughs) We thought and he's thinking, me? Me? Like the like me? No. No. No, you must have it wrong. And, and thinking, what, us, him, you, 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 could just sort of, you could just sort of see it starting to sort of seep in, you know, <laughs> as everyone starts to realise what this is actually about. As the weight of it starts to hit in the minds and in the hearts of the hearers. And they're going to walk away and go, oh, what the, oh no. Like what he just did was he took all the emotion out of the partisan argument and displayed the heart of God. What he just did is exactly what you are going to have to learn to do by the anointing of the Holy Spirit as our society gets angrier and more partisan and more violent is that you and I are going to be called to take all the steam out of the situation and leave people just going, Oh my God. Oh my God. Three things, I'll hand it back and, and just three observations, quick observations. Then we'll have a little bit of a break and then I'm going to talk to you again. Um, if you're a preacher, and I'm speaking to leaders, and so I've prepared this very much for, for leaders. Um, if you're a preacher, learn to speak to people's hearts and not their heads, right? Because every major decision you've ever made, you made with your heart. You never made with your head. I've seen guys come to me and women too and say, and if I marry a person, it's got to be A, B, C, they're going to have this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this. But then I fell in love, right? All of a sudden, this didn't matter because my heart took over. See, ultimately, 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 your heart will determine your future, not your head. 
Now, I'm not saying that theology isn't important, and I'm not saying that we don't need to preach correct doctrine. What I'm saying is Jesus understood something that a lot of preachers don't. You've got to speak to people's hearts, which fundamentally means this. You've got to learn to be, you've got to be a great storyteller. You've got, to be able to, you've got to be able to build tension. You've got, to be, you've got to have people doing what all you guys are doing only five minutes ago. What, what, is it, what does it say? What does it say? What does it say? <laughs> You're all looking in your Bibles like you've never read that story before. <laughs> Why were you doing that? Because I was building tension around the verse. And you couldn't wait for me to read it. You had to get ahead of me. <laughs> That's tension. That's communication. Right? And, and you, you've got to, be a, you got to learn to build tension. I don't know if you've ever watched the Channel 9 News. They do it every night. It starts to drive you crazy after a while, doesn't it? Coming up later in the bulletin. <laughs> now here's something coming. Just because they want to keep you in there, keep you in there. You've got, you've got to build tension and, and tell stories. Now, here's a, you know, um, Hollywood tells us, I don't know how many movies have ever been made, you know, 300,000, who knows, 10 million, who knows. Hollywood movie makers tell you, and you can Google this, there are only seven different stories. So next time you're rushing off to see the movies, you've already seen it. It's okay. <laughs> There's only seven different stories or eight, something like that. Some people argue with eight or seven different stories ever told. That, that's, that's the whole of the human experience. You know what that means for you and me? That's brilliant. <laughs> that means when we're finished on a Sunday, some woman comes or some bloke comes and says, have you been reading my mail? You know, <laughs> Oh, the Holy Ghost must have been telling you all kinds of things about me. Well, maybe that's true. But the truth is, you know, Paul said, there's no temptation that's not common amongst men. Uh, we have this incredible privilege of revealing people to themselves. And people leaving going, oh, what the? That's, I, that's me. Wow. I didn't realise. That that's Jesus was revealing them to themselves from telling stories. Tell stories. Learn to communicate by telling stories that are laced with tension. Number one. Number two. Um, make sure that when you're preparing a message, I don't know how many preachers are in the room can identify with this one, but if you've ever prepared a sermon, right, and you're preparing a sermon, you're writing sound, and all of a sudden you see a picture of, of a member of your church, you think, geez, I hope they're there on Sunday. They really need to get here this, you know. <laughs> I'm going to really emphasize this. I'll make sure I'm not looking at them because I don't want to make it that obvious, right? So I'll look over here, but I know they're over there. <laughs> and whenever you do that, inevitably they don't turn up. But anyhow, here's, here, is, here is my $64,000 question. How many of you, when you're preparing a message, see the face of an unsafe person? And if you don't, I encourage you to get the face of one and put it on your desk and halfway through the message, just ask them, how are they going with it? How's it relating to them? Just relate it. Just relate it. Isn't that a big deal? It's just that whenever we see the pictures of people when we're preparing in our mind, inevitably those in the Pharisaical camp and this other camp we don't see too much about because they don't complain much about church because they don't come. <laughs> so... Someone else has got to get them into our psyche. Someone else has got to get them into our mind. That's what I'm doing here. Get it into your mind. Get a picture. Keep it in your mind. Carry it in your heart. Understand that we're here for lost. God loves lost people. Emotion grows around lostness. Think about that and try to apply that to people for a moment. And, and, and the last thought is your church as you are is a compilation of habits. 
Um, you are a habitual creature. I didn't see you put your pants on this morning, and most of you would be happy about that, but I'll tell you something that took place. Um, the leg that you put in which side of the trouser is the same every morning. You never think about it. You've never contemplated it. But when you put your pants on, you put the right or the left leg in first. It's just the way that you do it because you are a creature of habit. Uh, if you're a gentleman and you shave, you, you start on the same side of the face. So you put on makeup, you start on the same side of the face because you are a creature of habit. Everything about you is habits, right? You, you, you sow a habit, you reap a future. The same applies for your church. Your church is about habits. You have a lot of habits in your church, a lot of good, healthy habits. But here's the habit that's going to set your church apart. If you can develop this habit, then you will have a significant church in wherever it is God has placed you. And that's the habit of bringing unsaved people. That's a habit. Now, it's a habit only few people have. But it's a habit that we want to try to develop, culturify. I'm not angry at those people who don't have the habit. In my church, there might be two or three people that have that habit. But here's the thing about a habit, right? A habit uh, has, an, initi- has an, a, uh, um, uh, an initiating siren or, or, or an alarm that goes off, right? We're gonna, in a moment, we're going to eat. And you eat all the time. It's a habit because <laughs> this thing goes off inside of you that says, I'm hungry, I'm hungry. You don't think about it, right? You haven't scheduled in, you know, we've got to, don't forget to eat today. No, there's something intuitive about it. There's a signal in your life that says, eat. There's a signal in your life that says, put your pants on. There's a signal, fortunately. There's a signal in your life that says, shave or whatever it is that you do. And then you go into the, and then what you have is a process. You have a single, a process and a payoff. There's a single, a signal, a process and a payoff. This isn't mine, right? This is a guy who's written a whole book on habits. And so, so here's the simple question I've got for you. What's the signal in your church for your people to invite? Because if there's no signal, there's no habit. So you can talk about it till the cows come home. But every habit has a a signal, a process, and a payoff. And if we want to develop that habit in our church, then maybe we can think about that for a little bit and see how we might massage that into the culture of our church so that we've got um, the two groups of people that we can speak with. Amen. Thus endeth the lesson. Uh, I'm going to give back to James for a moment and we'll come back and do another one.